Hello and welcome back to The Ties That Find. I'm your host, Rachel, and this is a true crime podcast that tells the stories of long investigated mysteries that are solved using forensic genealogy. As a disclaimer, I am in no way affiliated with or sponsored by GEDmatch, Parabon Nanolabs, or the DNA Doe Project. This week, we learn about the case surrounding a female body found burning on a woodpile in Texas in 2006, who came to be known as Lavender Doe. Who was she? Where did she come from? And who did this to her? Sadly, Lavender Doe is not going to be the only woman killed in today's story. So let's settle in and find out. Hey you, welcome back. Well, we have no news except the official news that the podcast is officially launched this week. And so now when I record, I'm actually thinking about people being out there and listening. Um, So Rachel, don't screw this up. (laughs) I am still a little petrified, but we're going to work through it. And hopefully this um, new energy, nervous energy works in our favor and the quality of my delivery and presentation and and the podcast as a whole goes up and not down. We will see. Um, this is a project that I think is um, important to pursue, so I'm going to keep doing it and we'll see how it goes. As far as my DNA kit with Ancestry.com goes, I did send it out a few weeks ago. Got a little nervous that I didn't get the email that they had received it, so I sent them a, a little chat box on the website and they said that um, they may have it. It might not just be the United States Postal Service overflow from Christmas. Um, but then the very next day, they actually did give me an email and said that they have it in the system and it's pending testing. So I guess that's it for the little stuff. Let's get into today's case. Today, we're beginning our story on Sunday, October 29th, 2006. We're on an oil lease outside of Kilgore, Texas. Kilgore is a small town, about 14,000 people at the time. A few target shooters are out on the property looking for things to, I guess, shoot at, and they come across a body face down burning on a wood pile. I can't imagine what those target shooters were were thinking and feeling at that time. All of a sudden, they're smelling things. They're they're seeing smoke. They come across this wood pile, and there's a body laying there. Um, it must the smell must have been horrific. Who knows if they have reception? If they've got if they're able to call the police right then and there, or if they have to get back closer to any kind of reception over by where they're parked. But in any case, they are able to call the police. The body is horribly burned, but they're able to discover some basic details about her body. It's a female, early 20s, with light brown or reddish hair, average weight and build, and she's wearing blue jeans and a purple slash lavender sweater. She has $44 in her pocket, and there's a gas can nearby. Clearly, the gas can was used to start her on fire. Now, the autopsy at the local sheriff's department, they did complete a a rape kit, and they were able to find semen inside her, but there were no other signs of injury. So who was this girl and where did she come from? Of course, the police are asking everyone around town in Kilgore and then also in the town near, the bigger town nearby in Longview. Longview is about 10 miles away, but nobody is claiming this body. No one says she, they know her. No one has any idea where she came from. No one's missing anyone. So police take her DNA and also the semen sample found in the rape kit and they upload it to CODIS and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, hoping to figure out who she is and who did this to her. 
At some point, there was Walmart footage that was discovered, and there was a girl matching her description, selling, um, trying to sell items out of a brochure in the parking lot to customers so that they think that this is actually her, but they still don't know who, who she is. Jane Doe is buried in Longview Cemetery, and the case stays with the Gregg County Sheriff's Department. Over the years, Jane Doe from Kilgore, Texas, her story is talked about on the internet, and eventually she becomes known as Lavender Doe. Ten years go by, and there's still no hits or leads in NamUs or in CODIS. So the Sheriff's Department decides to exhume her body because DNA technology has advanced in the last 10 years, and they're able to make a clay replica of her of her face and what she looked like, which actually is a pretty pretty good interpretation, I think. Now, in 2018, the local Lieutenant Mike Claxton, he says there just has to be someone out there. You just have to believe that, that she belongs to. Now, this replica they made of her and the interviews that they're doing with the local police department and the sheriff's department, they're all well and good. But from what, what I could find in my research, it's only being published in the Longview News Journal. I don't, I'm not seeing any national coverage about this. We do know that there are, you know, the talks on the internet about her, but those are in web sleuth communities. Those are in communities where people go to, to talk about all unidentified people or missing people or unsolved mysteries. They're not in the general public. So whoever this, this young woman belongs to, they might not be part of those communities and they're clearly for the last 10 years, not living in or around Longview or Kilgore, Texas. Let's keep in mind that Longview's population is 116,000. That's about the same size as Allentown, Pennsylvania, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Victorville, California, Athens, Georgia. So there's it's a city that most people would know, but we're also thinking about whether or not this story is making it to the rest of the country. And it's not. I was not able to find any kind of real national coverage about Lavender Doe outside of the local Longview newspaper. Now, at a certain point throughout the years, police do reveal that they do have a suspect for her murder. However, they did interview him and they released him because there wasn't enough to keep him on. His name was Joseph Wayne Burnett. Why him? I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe there was a license plate that they found on the Walmart video footage that showed that, you know, she had been talking to him or she approached the car. We don't really know why. But who is this guy? So he's actually a really big piece of shit. Uh, Joseph Wayne Burnett was born on March 26, 1977. Don't really have any information about his early life. But by the time he's 19 years old in 1996, he's convicted of aggravated sexual assault. He does go to jail and he serves about about nine years in prison for this. And then he's released from jail in 2005. Not sure where he came from, but we know that he ends up in Longview in this time because, like we said, he was interviewed by police right around the time that they discovered Lavender Doe. In 2007, he's picked up and he's sent back to jail because he's not registering as a sex offender for his earlier conviction. So we're not sure what went on here exactly. He may have been released from jail because he served his full term, or he may have been let out on parole. I think if he let, was let out on parole, then his parole officer, of course, if you're on parole, you need to have your address registered, but you're not automatically registered as a sex offender. I would think that if he was being watched over by a parole officer, that the parole officer knows his address, correct? However, it's not automatic that he's registered as a sex offender. He has to do it himself. Or possibly he, when as soon as he was released from jail, he didn't have any parole because he served his full term. And therefore, he was just let out into, you know, back into society on his own, but he was supposed to register. In any case, it took two years for them to, to either 
realized he wasn't registering, refused to register, hunt him down, whatever the case may be, and he gets picked up in 2007. They do send him back to jail for 10 years, actually, which I think is pretty good on them. Um, and then he returns to Longview again in 2017. So this must be his hometown from what I from what I gather, because he just keeps going back to Longview. Two months out of getting out of jail in 2017, he's accused of exposing himself to a woman in a parking lot in town. Clearly, he's got an itch he needs to scratch, and he's already served 19 years in jail for being a sexual aggressor, attacker, deviant, what have you, and not registering as a sex offender. Shortly after this, Burnett meets a woman in town, Felicia Pearson. She's a single mother with at least one child, a son, and she has mom and brother in town as well. She's a dancer at a bikini bar. She works there for a long time, and she also works at, a, at the town nursing home. They do move in together, and they live together in an apartment, but they move out of the apartment in June of 2018. On July 14th, 2018, Felicia is reported missing by her mom. Mom says that her and Burnett had been living at the Contessa Inn, and she hasn't spoken to Felicia for a few days. Police and townspeople are out looking for Felicia, and she is finally found on July 24th. She's found in a wooded area off some side streets in town, and they do start thinking they're going to look for Joseph Burnett. When the community got together to honor Felicia, one of her old bosses, Teresa Fears from the Bikini Bar, told a story about Felicia as an employee. She said a bar guest had gotten too drunk and thrown up in the bathroom, and then Felicia went and got him a mop and a bucket and told him that he had to clean it up himself. And he did it, and he had no problem with it, and him and the whole bar actually was la laughed about it. That sounds to me like Felicia was a strong woman, and she also had a good sense of humor and a good work ethic. Now, the same day that Felicia's body was found, an arrest warrant was issued for Joseph Burnett for failing to register for his change of address. Remember, he had moved from his apartment with Felicia. With the warrant, they're searching for Joseph Burnett, and they find him the next county over, which is about a half an hour drive, and they arrest him on the failure to change his address in the sex offender registry system. While he's arrested and he's in custody, they do question him about Felicia's murder and he confesses. Now he doesn't give any kind of motive. He doesn't tell us what happened or why he's killing, why he killed her. Um, but they also do bring up Lavender Doe's case. I'm not sure if it's he breaks, brings it up or if the police bring it up, but in any case, in an article I found in the Atlantic in 2019, local Lieutenant Eddie Hope tells us what Burnett told them in the interview. Quote, she came up to him selling magazines, but he didn't want them. Then she tried to sell him some lingerie out of a magazine, and he didn't want that. She asked if she could get in the truck with him, and so he let her in. She agreed to have sex, according to Burnett, but stole money from him, and that's why he allegedly strangled her, but left $40 in her pocket. That was money she had earned, he said, unquote. Now, this guy is clearly screwed up, right? He's a sex offender in multiple ways, in multiple years, and he's also a two-time admitted murderer. So we're not going to put it past him that he's going to probably lie about what happened with his en encounter with Lavender Doe. But if we're going to take him for his word, this is what he wants us to believe about her and not about him. She came up to him selling magazines in a parking lot, and then she wanted to offer him sex. So you're in a parking lot trying to sell magazines, and then you just go to a man and he doesn't want your ma your whatever you're selling out of the brochures, and then you just offer yourself as a prostitute. Now, there was an article that I came across when researching for this story, and it did talk about sex trafficking and young girls being lured into 
companies that were trying to sell items out of brochures or magazines, and they would send the girls off to parking lots and other public places to try to sell items, you know, like from the magazines, but then they would turn into offering themselves as as the product instead. Um, I'm not really sure if this is something that Lavender Doe was a part of, but it does kind of fit the it does kind of fit the scenario that the magazine article was talking about. But I think we can also argue that he propositioned her. He's sitting in his truck in a, or a car in a parking lot and a girl, a young girl approaches him. He thinks she looks good. He says, hey, I don't want the stuff in your magazine, but I'll take you. And then she says, okay, fine. It's quite possible that that's what happened as well. So what happened next? Did he drive her off to wherever he was living at the time and then they had their sexual interlude? Did he drive her out to, you know, this oil lease where she was found eventually? Or did he take her somewhere else? We don't we don't know. And then after they had sex and he gave her the $40, she decided she was going to steal from him. So he wants us to believe that she's stealing money from him. If they're out in the countryside, she just wants to get away. She probably is just like, you know what, at least that's 40 bucks if, if this is what happened. Here's 40 bucks. He's going to drive me back to town and then I'll be on, on with my life. He wants us to believe that she's stealing some money from him or something. I, I don't buy it because she's a small girl. And if you look at photos of him, he looks like a jock. He looks like a muscle man. He looks like a guy who picks things up and puts things down. And he's scary. So I don't buy the fact that she's trying to now get one over on him and she thinks that she's just going to get away with it. He had some other motive. He had some other reason for doing it. He probably got a thrill off of it. And then clearly later, he did it again with Felicia. Who knows what happened, his encounter with Felicia and why he killed her. But this whole thing about stealing, about her stealing from him is, is bullshit. Another question we have is where did this gas can come from? Did he already have it in his truck? Or I'm not sure if he was driving a truck or a, or a, or a car, but did he already have the gas can with him and he was out prowling for a possible victim? If he didn't have the gas can at the time, then at some point he had her body and he needed to go find a gas can because clearly his MO for covering it up was going to be to just burn her and leave her there so she couldn't, she was unrecognizable and any kind of evidence wouldn't be, and there would be no evidence to be able to track him down. So we just want to touch on the CODA situation from back in 2006. There was a semen sample that was found um, in lavender dough, in on lavender dough, and they submitted it to CODIS, but there never was any hits that came back. So Joseph Burnett, he was convicted right in 1997, I think it was. It was the year after the, the the sexual assault. It's quite possible that at that time they weren't collecting and storing DNA samples from their inmates. So it's possible that he just, you know, got by on on that technicality as far as being in CODIS and not coming back as a hit. But now at this point, it's been 12 years since Lavender Doe was killed and discovered, but we do have him in custody. He got picked up on that failure to register a change of address for the sex offender registry, and now he's confessing to Felicia Pearson's murder and to Lavender Doe. But what's happening as far as figuring out who Lavender Doe is? Well, we're going to go back into the Web Sleuth community, and there's a man named Kevin Lord. He's also from Texas, and he's actually studying to become a private investigator himself. So he's on these message boards, and he says to himself, you know what, I'm going to take Lavender Doe's case, and I'm going to submit it to the DNA Doe Project. Now, the DNA Doe Project is a volunteer organization of genealogists and other people that take on unknown bodies that are found and have no names. They get their DNA profiles, they submit them to GenMatch or other public websites, 
and they try to trace the family trees to discover who the person is. So Kevin Lord submits this case suggestion to the DNA Doe Project, um, but it does cost money. Remember, it's not cheap. And these are people that are that have no names and have no family. So they have to rely on people donating to the cause, even though the people know that they're not donating to their own family members' discovery. The case for Lavender Doe was fully funded in August of 2019. So they contacted the Sheriff's Department. Now, the Sheriff's Department submitted her DNA sample. They ran the testing for this kind of testing, and then the profile was uploaded into GEDmatch. By October 2019, just a few months later, they were able to get a lot of hits. So the first person that law enforcement reaches out to actually also does live in Texas herself. And we're going to call her Monica. And remember, I don't know what I don't know what her actual name is, but she doesn't know any of the missing relatives that she may have. But she does allow them access to her genetic family tree. And ultimately, the Doe Project and police do believe that Lavender is the daughter of a first cousin of Monica. And Monica's in her 50s. So now, have we seen, as we've seen before, many of us can't possibly know all of our relatives, right? Especially in the last century. Because we have to take into account all the possibilities of divorces and remarrying and having kids out of wedlock. And all those extra people that we don't know are we're genetically related to. So this woman gets a knock on the door out of the blue and they tell her, We've got this body that we found back in 2006, and we think you're genetically linked to her. Do you mind if we can get into your family tree? So we'll praise her for allowing her family tree to be researched so she can so they can identify this murdered girl that she didn't even know existed. Now, they find an uncle of Monica's, and they discover that he had had a daughter named Robin from his first marriage, but Monica didn't even know about this girl named Robin. And in this case, Robin is actually her first name. It was in that Atlantic article I mentioned earlier. Robin had died in 2006 at the age of 50, and the genealogists decided to see how far they could go down Robin's tree branch. They found two marriage certificates and discovered that she had gone by Robin Wilma Dodd when she died. And they Googled that name and found that her possible last husband's name was Johnny Dodd. Now, he had had a daughter that was born in the same age range as our Lavender Doe. So then Kevin Lord, remember that PI student that brought the case to to the DNA Doe Project? He discovered that Johnny Dodd's daughter had actually stopped using her social security number back in 2006. Whoa, now that's a good lead. So when he follows up with Johnny Dodd, he finds that Johnny was living in Florida and married and he had other kids. After many other interviews and other internet searches, the police finally announced on February 11th, 2019, that Lavender Doe has been officially identified as Dana Lynn Dodd. So who is Dana? Dana was born September 6th in 1985, but she was not raised by her birth, her birth mother, Robin. She was actually raised with her by her father, Johnny, and his wife. I'm not sure what the wife's name is, but um, at some point, the dad does leave, and she's just raised by her stepmom. Now, her stepmom has two older kids than Dana. Um, there's Amanda and John, and Amanda is about nine years older. So it's a little confusing to understand the family makeup, but we've all seen stuff that's been a lot weirder. But it sounds to me like dad was in a relationship with Amanda's and John's mom, wasn't in that relationship, ended up with Robin because Robin ends up with the last name Dodd somehow. So they must have gotten married. Then they got divorced. And then dad went back to Amanda and John's mom. And he also brought along with him Dana, the daughter from that he had with Robin. That's the closest I can come up with as far as figuring out the family makeup. However it worked out, I think it's really great that Dana and John and their mother 
were able to, you know, keep close ties with Dana and raise Dana together as their own, even when their dad left. Now, once Dana gets older and she's in her late teens, she decides she's not going to live with mom anymore, but she's going to go move in with her sister, Amanda. Amanda lives in Florida. I think Dana had been living with mom in, um, forgive me, it's in a state, maybe Alabama, maybe Arkansas. But then she moves, she goes to Florida to be with her sister, Amanda. Now, remember, Amanda's nine years older than Dana, so she's probably in her mid to late 20s. And I believe she's married and she has at least one child at the time. Things don't go so well. They don't have the best... Um, living situation. I think Dana was kind of acting out. But then her brother John says, hey, you know what, why don't you come live with me? And we'll try we'll try this living arrangement. In the meantime, one of Dana's friends living down there in Florida tells us that her and Dana had started taking some kind of drugs. They were getting into the, you know, the naughty girl life. And the friend at one point became pregnant and told Dana that she wanted to get clean. Dana wasn't really into it getting clean at that time. So she decided, you know what, you're leaving me. I'm having trouble with my family down here. I'm just going to take off with my boyfriend and go to Ohio. So Dana and her boyfriend go off to Ohio. And at some point, Dana's family hears that the boyfriend had actually died of a drug overdose, but they don't really know whatever happened to Dana. I guess maybe based on the relationship that they had that wasn't the closest relationship, it's possible that they just wanted to let her live her own life and not intrude so much. But from what I could gather, she was never reported as a missing person. I think it's also hard to report somebody as a missing person when the last you know of them is from a far away and you don't know if they have a permanent address. So if Dana and her boyfriend were into drugs and just like we said earlier, maybe she got wrapped up in this, you know, sex trafficking magazine selling kind of lifestyle. It's possible that they didn't even know that she had a permanent address. She, they didn't even know what town that they could report her missing to. They might have been able to contact her through a cell phone. Maybe they paid for the cell phone. I don't know. But it's very possible that they didn't even know where she actually lives or any kind of street address or town to report her missing from. So now we're in the fall of 2018 going into 2019, and I'm so sorry. I think I said earlier that it was 2019 that her case was being researched by the DNA Doe Project. It was actually the summer, late summer of 2018. So yes, now we're back in this, the fall of 2018 into 2019, and her sister Amanda gets gets the call from, I'm not sure if it was, if it was the DNA Doe Project or if it was the county sheriff's department, but they said, hey... We have a we have a, a a Jane Doe here over in this tiny town in Kilgore, Texas, and it's possible we think it, that she's your sister. And Amanda said that she knew right away that it must have been her sister Dana. Now, unfortunately, two days later, their mother, Amanda's Amanda's birth mother and Dana's stepmother, their mom actually passes away. But Amanda tells us, "quote At least she knew Dana had been found. The hardest thing was my mom because she raised her." Dana looked up to her because she knew that she loved her, unquote. Now, throughout 2019 and into 2020, Joseph Wayne Burnett is working out a deal with the prosecutor for both homicides. Joseph Wayne Burnett will plead guilty to killing Felicia Pearson and Dana Dodd in a court appearance on December 15, 2020, and he was sentenced to 50 years each for each murder and also 50 years for the sex offense. His earliest parole will be in 25 years. But please, God, do not let this guy get released on parole. I guess that the possibility of parole must have been part of the plea deal. But entertaining the idea that eventually he's going to get out on parole it terrifies me to no end. 
clearly this guy cannot handle being out in the out in society without murdering, raping, exposing himself, what have you, to females. This guy should not be around women. Let's just put it that way. Now, Dana's sister, Amanda, made a, her victim impact statement at the sentencing, and she says, quote, I will never forgive you, and it's not because of hate. It's because you don't deserve my forgiveness. You don't deserve anybody's forgiveness. Justice has not been served here today, and it will not be served until you are dragged to your hell, unquote. Oh, girl, I would say the same thing. It's really hard. I can't imagine how hard it must be for the victims' families to have to agree, because they do agree, you know, the... The sheriff's department, the state, whoever the law enforcement agency is, will go to the victim's families and say, this is the plea deal that they're thinking that they're offering, that we're thinking of accepting. How do you feel about this? And I'm sure Amanda did not want to have to go through this trial. I'm sure that she said to herself, her and her family, maybe her brother John said, you know what? We got to cut our losses and just say, you know what? At least we'll take him. We'll take what we can get so we can just get we can get past this. We don't want to have to go through this trial and, and, and watch him and and look at him every day. For the victim statement for Felicia, her aunt Rosalind Wallace spoke, and she said, quote, that was the day you took away a mother, a daughter, a niece, and a sister. Felicia meant everything to us, especially her mother. They shared a special bond that couldn't be broken. You managed to take that away in a blink of an eye. Now she will never get the chance to live out her hopes and dreams. She will never get the opportunity to live to her full potential, unquote. Now, Felicia Pearson's family and friends, they're coming at it from a different perspective than than Dana's family and friends. Felicia had lived with this man. They had a relationship together. Her family knew him. Her friends knew him. So they had their own thoughts and feelings about him at the time when they when Felicia was alive and, and you know, oh, this is Felicia's boyfriend. On the opposite side, Dana's family, Amanda, John, and then her friend down in Florida and anybody else that knew Dana, they had... They didn't even know where Dana was or what Dana was doing with her life at the time that she was killed. So this Burnett guy, he's he's picking up girls on in Walmart parking lots, but he's also trying to have, I guess, romantic relationships with people. I am interested to know what this guy's backstory is. Um, did he have his own mommy issues? Did he have daddy issues? Was he raised in a, in a loving and caring household or did he just not have any kind of real family family bonds that would prevent him from doing these kind of heinous crimes? Amanda and John went out to Longview, Texas to visit her grave and they decided they're going to keep her where she is. They're not going to exhume her body and bring her you know, back to Florida or anywhere else. They're going to they're gonna let her stay there where she is. And this is what Amanda says about holding a public memorial for Dana. Quote, we're just going to speak and I want to tell everyone, thank you for being there for her and for keeping her in your, their thoughts. That's what we take comfort in, is knowing that she was loved. People took her in and loved her. She wasn't with us, but people in Longview took her in as one of their own, unquote. And that is the story of Lavender Doe, found to be Dana Lynn Dodd, Felicia Pearson, and piece of shit Joseph Wayne Burnett. This is just one more case that was able to be solved using genetic genealogy and I know I might sound like a broken record, but please, if you're considering it, opt in at GEDmatch. Thank you so much for coming along with me on this wild ride. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at The Ties That Find. You can email me case suggestions or family tree stories at thetiesthatfind at gmail.com. Or you can visit my website for sources and photographs at thetiesthatfind.com. Until next week, stay safe and hug your loved ones. 